0: can afford anything, but not everything, every choice is a trade-off against something else. And that doesn't just apply to your money. That applies to any limited resource you need to manage. Like your time, your focus, your energy, your attention. Saying yes to something implicitly means saying no to all other options. And that is terrifying. And it opens up two questions. First, what matters most? Second, how do you align your choices around that which matters most? Answering these two questions is a lifetime practice and that's what this podcast is here to help you facilitate. My name is Paula Pant. I am the host of the Afford Anything podcast and this week marks the 1 year anniversary of the Reddit takedown of Wall Street. I'm using that phrase a little tongue in cheek. You'll you'll hear about it in the upcoming interview, but you remember a year ago when a bunch of people in a subreddit called Wall Street Bets decided to pile into a bunch of meme stocks, most notably GameStop, but also AMC Theatres, Nokia, BlackBerry, and a few others. They decided to all pile into these meme stocks, drive up the prices, and squeeze out the short sellers, which were these major hedge funds that had taken short positions, meaning they made money if the stock went down. It was heralded as the triumph of the average investor... Meaning some 25 year old in his mom's basement over the hedge funds who long have marshaled their data, their research, their troves of information to be able to know things that the rest of us don't. And so in the standoff between individual investors versus institutional investors, i.e. average Joe versus the hedge fund, this compelling David versus Goliath narrative emerged. And then to make it extra spicy, the popular trading app Robinhood shut down trades from people who wanted to buy shares of GameStop. They only allowed trading one way, meaning they allowed people to sell but not buy. And that inherently created a downward price pressure on the price of the stock. I mean, that's simple, but it's Economics 101, if people are allowed to sell but not buy, this necessarily exerts one-way price pressure, and it means that the decision made by the trading platform influences the price of the stock. It's a little Schrodinger's cat, kind of, where the broker isn't just facilitating the transaction, they're influencing the outcome, whether they intend to or not, whether or not that's... The purpose of the decision, and as we're about to hear, that was not the purpose of the decision, but it was the outcome. Not the intent, but the outcome. And so that took this juicy story and amplified it a thousandfold. So all of that took place exactly a year ago this week. And to celebrate that one-year anniversary, well, celebrates may be imprecise word, but to mark that anniversary, today we're chatting with Spencer Jacob, He is an award-winning columnist at the Wall Street Journal and the author of a book called The Revolution That Wasn't, which is a deep dive into what happened with GameStop, Reddit, Robinhood, and the craziest financial story, not just of the past year, but of the past decade. So to pull back the curtain and learn what really happened and why. And by the way, if we do want to stick it to Wall Street, if we do want to stick it to the hedge funds, how exactly do we do that? To answer all of these questions, here is award-winning financial journalist, Spencer Jacob. Hi, Spencer.
1: Hi, Paula. Thanks for having me.
0: Thank you so much for coming on the show. You have done extensive research around the GameStop revolution, the Reddit takedown of Wall Street. We're we're now celebrating the one-year anniversary. And I'm using those phrases, ironically, in a sense, I'm using them uh, with a dash of sarcasm, because of course, it's not quite fair to describe it as the Reddit takedown of Wall Street. But that's how the memes describe it. I am fascinated by what happened. And I'm really looking forward to this next hour in which we discuss how it all unfolded. But to start with, what were the conditions that allowed this to happen, the technological conditions, the social conditions. You know, there were Yahoo chat forums in the 1990s. So why did it happen now? Why didn't it happen in the 90s or in 2000 or in
1: 2010? You know, it's fascinating because a a lot of things had to happen all at once, technologically and and socially and financially, to create the conditions for this to happen. And I mean, just to, to recap quickly for anybody who's Might not remember, might not have been following, although it was a crossover story. It wasn't just a financial story, of course, Mm -hmm. was that a band of millions, but really the core group was hundreds of thousands of young traders who organized themselves on Wall Street Bets, which is a subreddit on Reddit, decided to target hedge funds that were short, uh, some dowdy stocks that had not seen their heyday for. 10, 20 years in some cases. The mm-hmm. the biggest one was GameStop, but it wasn't the only one. And they, they sort of, they used its shares and options in its shares as a weapon to hurt Wall Street, to blow hedge funds. And they, they did hurt a handful of people on Wall Street. They basically, you know, th- there were some sophisticated people on the board who said, you know what? The short interest in these stocks is so high that if we all get together and buy the stock and buy options, certain types of options in the stock, then uh, they'll be Forced into huge losses, possibly losing all of their money, and mm-hmm. this will be a way to stick it to the man. And we're going to make money. That is sort of what happened. There was one hedge fund in particular that lost about six billion dollars in a few days. One of the most successful hedge funds on on Wall Street. Several others who lost a lot of money. So how did it happen? So a lot of things had to had to occur. One is that trading had to be cheap, or not just cheap. It had to be specifically, it had to be free. Uh, these days. When you go to any retail broker in the U.S. and in other countries, sometimes too, they'll say no commissions. You pay no commission when you trade. It's free to trade. It's not really free to trade. They they call it free to trade because there is a cost. Everything has a cost. Uh, just like you know, when you're on Facebook, is it free? I mean, it's you can send you know look at uh, all the photos of all your kids' friends and everyone's wedding photos, it's not free because you're sort of paying the dues and all the information you share. And trading isn't free either. I go into the ways later into the ways that it really isn't. But you have to think that it's free, which means that you can trade many, many times and not really worry about kind of chewing up the value of your account. And that's something that was pioneered by a company called Robinhood. They weren't the first to do it, but they're the first to, to make it really popular. They introduced it some years ago. That was their thing, free trading for the masses. And they attracted lots of young people with not very much money uh, and not much sophistication either. And they have a beautiful app that's won an award. The first year it came out in 2015. It's frictionless, it's intuitive, uh, it's perfect for a generation that grew up with smartphones. And in late 2019, because Robinhood by that point was getting about one out of every two brokerage accounts opened in the US, everybody else threw in the towel. Schwab, and Fidelity and Ameritrade, eBay, all these much bigger firms just said, well, okay, we're going to stop charging commissions, too. Mm -hmm. And it's going to cost us a lot of money, but we have to do it to compete. What happened was that there was an explosion in trading in, in retail interest. So the opposite happened from what they expected, because they, they, of course, they still do make money when you trade uh, in other ways, and they wound up making a lot more money. This was leading into 2020. Well, you all remember what happened in 2020,
2: mm-hmm.
1: which was that the the COVID 19 pandemic began. Now, the COVID 19 pandemic began. You know, millions of young people around the U.S. were were sent home or went home to mom and dad or were sitting at home, not going to to work. All of a sudden, a lot of money that they were spending going out with their friends, going out for beers and whatever they weren't spending. They got stimulus checks. Mm -hmm. A lot of them got unemployment checks as well. They had money and nothing to spend it on, and they were bored. Another thing that had happened was that sports betting had taken off like a rocket since 2018. Mm -hmm. Sports betting is legal now, I believe, in 46 states, and you can do through a smartphone. Daily fantasy sports is legal pretty much in every state that had been for a number of years. And especially the young men, men between the ages of 18 and 35, who really drove this phenomenon, this GameStop mania, also happened to the, if you draw a Venn diagram, they overlapped with young men who were into sports betting, who suddenly had no sports to bet on. You might mm. remember March, or April 2020, there were no sports. The only sports you could get on ESPN were like bowling Korean baseball, you know, and just reruns of old events, like sports it ceased to be a thing. And as a matter of fact, the the real boom in trading kind of got another leg up when March Madness was canceled, the men's NCAA basketball tournament, which is the most gambled-upon event each year in the US. That led to an, an explosion in speculative trading, and of course the stock market plunged. And volatility is very exciting. You know, if you're new to the stock market and you don't care, you know, you don't own a lot of stocks already that you're not saying, oh, man, my 401k is getting creamed. You're just seeing this thing moving up and down a couple of percent a day. There are some stocks that are moving up 10% or more a day, and especially exchange traded notes that uh, that have a lot of leverage in them. And, and trading in those took off like a rocket. I mean, there was one that was a, a bet on volatility futures that had a, just a massive, massive surge in trading. And people made if they bought at a certain time and sold at a certain time, about 30 times their money in that note. That was one of the more popular things that people traded. They traded things that owned airline stocks. You know, airlines were on the verge of bankruptcy and then they got bailed out. So it was like a great game. It was more exciting than sports betting or a casino and more profitable too. And so that laid the stage for tens of of millions of, of new inexperienced people to come into the market who were then looking for the sort of the next rush and were learning what to do by going on social media, TikTok, YouTube, and as specifically uh, affects this story, Reddit, Wall Street Bets, which was a very sort of you know wild, uproarious, meme-filled place to find trading advice.
0: In 2020, we were also coming off of an 11-year bull run. Do you think that there was? A level of confidence inspired by that young people who maybe didn't experience the recession of 2008, 2009, or if they did, experienced a massive, long-running recovery?
1: You know, I think that that definitely played a role. And it definitely played a role in somewhat more experienced investors diving in because the, you know, BTFD, I'm not going to spell out every word in that acronym, but that was the motto of young traders who, had, let's say, who had been active for a few year, more years since 2020. 2015, 2016, and that's what a lot of people told me, is that you know basically every time there's a dip, you go in and buy it, because the Fed's going to bail us out, things always bounce back. And in terms of bouncing back-
0: Uh, Sorry, I'm just going to pause you, because I'm sure there are people who are listening who are wondering what that acronym stands for, so I'll just, I'll say it. Okay, all right. Buy the effing dip,
1: (laughs) BTFD. That is indeed what it stands for. And so their experience was, every time there's like a scary event, there's some- the Fed might raise rates or this or that or some international event or Greece, you know, coming close to defaulting. That was a great time to buy. That was a, an excellent time to buy. And so it's like a Pavlovian reaction. People who were a little bit more experienced in the market but had not experienced 2008, which is, you know, a few tens of millions of people also on top of the the people who were brand new in 2020 mm-hmm. and 2021 who played a big role in this. Like you saw something plunge and you, you jumped in, you know, you got to be bold, you got to buy and ask questions later. And it doesn't matter if you kind of understood what you owned. You know, the, the thing is that it's going up and you keep on buying it. A momentum was a very successful strategy for people. So that also played a role. And that now let's look at 2020. Mm -hmm. because it was a bear market. A bear market is defined as a 20% drop from a a previous high. And it certainly was a bear market. The stock market lost a third of its value very, very quickly in a matter of weeks. Uh, It was one of the quickest. It was actually, sorry, it was the quickest descent from an all-time high to a bear market ever. Mm -hmm. But it also was the quickest recovery by orders of magnitude from a bear market. We were back by August. You made all your money back. And then kept on making money. And so, you know, it was like uh, if you were going to sort of stick your head in the lion's mouth and come out and sort of get a dollar every time you did it or pick up nickels in front of a bulldozer or whatever metaphor you want for like risky activity, that there was example number one that that was like if you were hesitant, then you didn't make money. And and the, the fact of the matter is that a lot of people I'm a little bit older than most people who participated in this people my age who had something to lose, who were worried about you know, retiring in a decade or two did not jump back in because there was a global pandemic. Stuff was bad, you know, and so and even people who were known for being having a lot of equanimity when it came to the market Warren Buffett, you know he sold his airline stocks uh he was kind of ridiculed by some of these people for selling his airline stocks when he could have let's say if he had doubled down, he would have doubled his money, but you know who knew you didn't know that they were going to be bailed out. you didn't know that so much money was going to be pumped into the economy and that we wouldn't all die of of this new illness, you know, that only some people would die, you know. And so you you could say he was being pretty prudent. But to these people, there was a new boss in town and it was them and it wasn't him. You know, that was that was old school and they were no new school. Mm. And, you know, they people had told them, don't buy cryptocurrency, don't buy Tesla. It's a bubble and all these things and had turned out so far to be wrong. And so kind of you know your your dad's broker at Merrill Lynch, who wears a suit who's telling you what to do, was like had given you terrible advice and mm-hmm. and people on the internet had given you great advice, like strangers on the internet and This is a generation that's much more open anyway to getting advice from random people who you you know, might use pseudonyms and There was one random guy at the the center of this this whole thing who had gigantic influence uh more than the others
0: right keith gill roaring kitty
1: that's right and they didn't know his name was keith gill until really the episode was on the downside but keith gill who is he was in fact a a financial advisor roaring kitty or deep effing value uh as he was known on on wall street bets went from being this kind of marginal figure who was very cerebral who was talking about this company called gamestop to when it when it all of a sudden became a thing People looked up all his old posts and all his old videos, and he had been touting it for a while. And, he, and the, the, the irony is, he had been touting it as a value investment, mm-hmm. but he was like somewhere between the value of traditional investing and memes. You know, he was a he was 34 years old at the time of the the main event took place, posting all kinds of memes and crazy videos and gesticulating wildly. <laughs> you know, and so he he was like a good person to spread the message. Uh, and when he when he went from like posting cerebral videos that were five hours long to just posting like, you know, memes with pictures of cats and, and, you know, movie posters and stuff like that. Then he went from being kind of nobody to being everybody. And the, the main thing that he did was when he became the center of attention very frequently for a while, every day, he was posting a screenshot of his E-Trade account. Mm-hmm. And he, there was a lot of money in his E-Trade account at one point. It went from having not much money to having over $50 million at one point, betting on this one stock, and he wouldn't sell. I mean he could have walked away with 50 million dollars and people were like if he's still in I'm still in. Mm-hmm. And that gets to a, an idea called social proof, you know, where you you see somebody who has been successful financially and you want to copy them because clearly they know what they're talking about. They made a lot of money even if they lucked into money. He didn't luck into it, but even if someone lucked into money, if they made a lot of money, you want to follow that person. It's why those like I don't know if you ever have had insomnia and watched a late night infomercial
2: mm-hmm.
1: and there's the guy getting out of his Lamborghini with like two blondes on, on under each arm and mm-hmm. a mansion in the background and his yacht in the background. And who knows if it's his or not, but he's like some ordinary guy who has all this wealth that's going to sell you 12 DVDs that show you how <laughs> you did it and whatever. And so right. that's why it's not just, he's not just sitting in an office. He's dressed really nicely has an expensive watch and he has all these toys that we know cost a lot of money because that ups his credibility. And that $50 million at one point that was in Keith Gill's E-Trade account upped his credibility with this group. Right, And he was very gutsy. He did not sell. He did not take money off the table. And part of the, the really the whole way that this scheme was supposed to work was that nobody was supposed to sell mm-hmm. ever. And then you'd all make a lot of money somehow.
0: Right. So a, a couple of things come to mind. First, my understanding, and, and you alluded to this when you said that uh, the irony is that Keith Gill actually initially bought this as a value investment. He originally bought long call options on GameStop because of the fact that GameStop was reformulating its board and it brought in some people from, I believe, Chewy.com?
2: Was well, that it?
1: that happened later. Yeah. Ryan Cohen came in uh, and that that was towards the end. That It had already surged a bit, but it was, it had a plan, then it had another plan, then it had another plan, and he kind of believed in the in, in the plan. So he, they brought in some new board members. You know, GameStop was a failing business. I, I have three sons, so um, I love video games, so I can give you a, a front row seat on GameStop over the years. And my oldest boy is turning 23 soon, you know, and he's been, gosh, we've been going there for 19 years or so, you know. Since you know, many PlayStation uh, versions ago, and we don't go there very often anymore, hardly at all, because it's kind of like blockbuster video was maybe four or five years before it went out of business. You know, digitized competitors are getting all the business now, not them. Mm -hmm. But he saw a way for them to reinvent themselves. And, you know, he had a good theory. He was a smart guy. And other people saw the same opportunity. Michael Burry, who's a, a famous value investor who became famous because he was featured in Michael Lewis's The Big Short. Also, after he took a stake, Michael Burry came in and took a stake. Mm-hmm. Then another value investor came in and took a stake. And these are like boring old dowdy value investors. right? Not, not meme stock investors. And then later, when things started to get interesting, then Ryan Cohen, who had, who had made a lot of money, he wasn't quite a billionaire yet, although he is now, because of GameStop, came in and bought a stake. And and he was somebody who was well-respected, had a lot of street cred with these young traders. And that's when the excitement really, really started to build. And at the same time, these hedge funds were like, no, this is hopeless. This is I'm going to double down at an even higher price and continue to bet on this stock going to zero eventually.
0: Right. So it seems as though there was, at least initially, a genuine case, a case made on fundamentals about the company in which a person could reasonably take either position. A person could reasonably either state, no, I think this company is going to be go the way of Blockbuster, or a person could reasonably state, hey, this could be a long value play. There's new talent coming into the board. Ryan Cohen now has a 10% stake. He was instrumental in the growth of Chewy.com, Which is, you know, one of the. I mean, who could go head to head with Amazon? But Chewy did in the pets department. So he certainly knows e commerce. Um, you know, there's certainly at least a reasonable case to be made in the beginning that GameStop could be a good purchase, a good investment.
1: That's right. And the analysts didn't think so. And uh, just full disclosure, you know, I I've been a financial journalist for coming up on twenty years now. But I was in, I worked in finance. I was an analyst for almost a decade to start my career. You know, analysts they know a lot of facts and things like that, but they're not very good at predicting what's going to happen. And so analysts were very pessimistic about the company. Mm -hmm. But it takes two to make a market. And there were some smart people, including Keith Gill, Michael Berry, Joel Tillinghast, who's a a very well-known value investor, and other people who had taken stakes in this company and thought that, there was a possibility it could turn around and, you know, that's really all you, you need. I mean, that's, that's a big misconception is, you know, I think these, these young people didn't understand. And I, I, I write about that a lot in, 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 my book about the, the episode, uh, is that they were kind of laughing at Keith Gill for many, many, many months saying like, dude, you know, you, you doubled your money, sell this thing, you know, and then he would lose half his money. And they're like, you know, you know how much money you lost? It's like more money than I've, I've made in my life. Like don't be such a moron, get out of this. And he was making basically kind of probabilistic arguments. You know, he was saying, no, I don't think that's right. And that, that gives me a lower cost base. And uh I don't really look at these short-term moves. And that's, you know, if you're gonna be a, a successful investor over the decades, I think that's exactly the the attitude to take, by the way. He was was right. He you know, he could have wound up being wrong about this and losing all of his money because he was taking a big gamble. But he, he's playing the odds, and he he liked what he saw, and he thought his odds were were okay, and that's kind of what value investors do. They're not sure, mm-hmm. but they have a strong feeling, and they think that the rest of the market got it wrong.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah,
1: so that that was pretty reasonable, but that's not what happened here. Then I think had that been his attitude all along, I think he would have made twice or four times or eight times his money and sold uh, way before the peak. You know, he made he he turned 50 grand into 50 million. Made a thousand times his money at one point.
0: Wow! So how did this become the preeminent meme stock? I mean, we we know that other stocks, AMC Theaters, Bed Bath and Beyond, Nokia. We know that several other companies became meme stocks. But why GameStop? Why did this become the biggest story? And why did uh, the subreddit Wall Street Bets grow from less than a million people? Up to eight million people. I mean, why did why did this become the story?
1: I think it's one of these things about like kind of lightning striking. It it, it started to take off, and then you had people, professionals on Wall Street, who were sort of ridiculing the thing, who were saying, "You know, you guys don't know what you're doing." You know, you're I'm going to tell you, you're inexperienced, and you had one short seller in particular who, um, because most of the people who were short this stock, and in case and I'm sure some people listening to this don't know this. Let's say you go out and you buy a stock. Mm-hmm. The most you could do is lose every penny you invested in that stock, unless you borrowed money, right? That would be pretty bad, but thats they're not going to come after your house, right? But a short seller is in the opposite position. The most they can make is 100%. So they sell a stock short, and then it goes to zero, and then they buy it back. So they sell it without owning it, and then they buy it back at zero. They made 100%, mm-hmm. which would be a huge payday for a short seller and and
0: in order to sell it without owning it they borrow it so they borrow it from someone then they sell what they've borrowed and then they wait for the price to drop and then they buy it back at a lower price and then return it to the lender but
1: what that means is that since there's no there's no limit to how high a stock can go their losses are are infinite Mm -hmm. so they have to eventually they will hit their pain point and they have to buy and if lots of people have done the same thing then they all have to buy at the same time it's like a like a theater catching fire. And there's like one little narrow exit door, but they trample each other, you know, and that's what happened.
0: And that's a short squeeze.
1: It was a short squeeze. And these people caused the short squeeze to happen. So like there's some great stock market stories in the 19th century, if you're into financial history at all, 19th century, early 20th century, people used to do this on purpose. Well, they knew somebody was short of stock and they're like, Hey, let's you and I and some other people with a lot of money sneak up. And very quietly, you know there's no internet then, so you could kind of do it discreetly, buy up lots and lots and lots of the stock, and then whoa, we'll show up one day and say, "Hey, there's not enough stock for you to buy back. you have to pay us a hundred times or whatever you're you're bankrupt you have to you have, you have to pay us all your money in order not to default on these these loans. That's called a corner, and that that would happen from time to time, like Vanderbilt and all these people were playing these games. But that that has been illegal for uh, about a century to do that because it's pretty disruptive, obviously, to the normal functioning of the stock market. Mm-hmm. But it's illegal for, you know, Paula, for you and me and a bunch of other people to kind of who might have a lot of money or, you know, and get together and to do that because that is kind of like a conspiracy. But it's not illegal or it's not clear if it's illegal for a million people to do it out in the open on a message board. And they were talking about this, you know, for many weeks on the message board. And and the thing is that this is a message board full of like, you know, jokes and memes and whatever. And, and these hedge fund managers were not really paying attention or or a couple did, but they didn't take it very seriously. Like they, they saw their names on the Internet. They had, you know, services that said, oh, if my name ever shows up on the Internet or the name of my fund, you know, and so they they pay some junior analysts to like, you know, write the, up a report like, yeah, boss, they mentioned you. But these guys don't know what they're talking about and for the most part they didn't but there were a few people who really didn't know what they're talking about we don't know who they are i've i and other people have tried to determine who they are but they clearly were pretty sophisticated and they understood that you could do this you could create an old-fashioned corner or try to and create a, a an explosion in the price and so th- this was all planned out and written about and built the momentum built over weeks. And then Ryan Cohen showing up, upping a stake, then later getting, you know, a seat on the board, all these things kind of just poured fuel on the fire. And then, on top of that, you had uh, one short seller in particular who was a, an activist short seller who went out and told these guys, like, you don't know what you're doing, you know, you're the suckers at the poker table. I think that's the exact wording he used. I'm going to post a video on Twitter. And they, you know, he became public enemy number one. His name is Andrew Left and he's a very successful short seller and he was just rolled over by these amateurs and lost so much money. He had to get out of the position in a couple of days. Uh, he said he lost a hundred percent. The main person who lost a lot of money wasn't doing any of this. He wasn't waving a red flag at, at balls. He was just kind of a, you know, he had a big sophisticated fund and he wasn't only short. He mainly was long, but Gabe Plotkin of Melvin capital. And he, he lost most although there were other firms like his that also lost billions but he lost about six billion dollars in a matter of days so yeah they stuck it to wall street the reason that the title of my book is the the revolution that wasn't is that that's not really what happened in the end like that's when we all i worked for the wall street journal and every other publication that's similar wrote a lot of stories those days there were over a thousand news articles in english about this this phenomenon in a period of several days about how they kind of pulled one over on wall street and they didn't that's the thing is like once you the dust cleared and you you think about it you're like you know they they paid a lot of money to wall street like wall street is a lot of different types of companies and they paid a, a ton of money to companies like virtu and citadel securities and all options market makers and a lot of fund managers made money and a lot of executives who were already rich at these companies made money and so the fact that this was kind of born out of in part out of a sort of sense of class resentment all these people with like young people with not a lot of money contributed their savings (laughs) to people who already were rich you know and a few guys lost money but more money was was made by far on Wall Street than was lost during this whole episode. I think they kind of still don't totally get that.
0: We'll come back to this episode in just a minute. But first... This episode is sponsored by State Farm. Are you a small business owner looking for insurance that fits your needs and budget? Look no further than State Farm. State Farm agents are not just insurance providers – They're also small business owners who live and work right here in your community. They understand the unique challenges of running and protecting a small business. When it comes to small business insurance, State Farm knows what it takes. Create a plan that fits your needs and your budget. State Farm agents are ready to help you choose personalized policies that truly understand your business. Insure your small business with a fellow small business owner. Talk to a State Farm agent today and get started on personalized small business insurance that fits your needs. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Talk to your local agent today. When it comes to financial advice, you've got to trust the source. It's why you listen to this podcast. When I'm looking to upgrade my wallet, I turn to NerdWallet. Their expert team of nerds dives into the details to help you find smarter financial products before nerd wallet i didn't know how to optimize what was in my wallet so i didn't know how to optimize how to use travel rewards to pay for vacations but now i've got a new card with more miles and i'm getting business class upgrades i'm getting lounge access i'm getting all kinds of perks that i didn't even know that i was missing out on what could future you do with more travel rewards Name some super easy choices that you make. For example, when you book a flight, easy choice, avoid the middle seat. Get the window or the aisle, right? Maybe at work or at home, there are certain things that you just always outsource, like tech support or a weekly house cleaning. Easy choices. What about selling with Shopify? Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business from the time that you launched to the time that you hit your first million in sales. And so whatever you're selling, whether it's tools for real estate investors or accounting workbooks or scented soap or outdoor outfits, whatever it is, Shopify helps you sell everywhere. They have both an in-person point of sale system as well as an all-in-one e-commerce platform. And it's the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. They also have Shopify Magic, which is an AI powered all star. And you can grow your average order value with the Shopify Bundles app, where you can create and sell product bundles with ease. What I love about Shopify is that no matter how big you want to grow, whether you just started your business. Today, or whether you've been in business for 10 years, Shopify gives you everything you need to control and take your business to the next level. They power 10% of all e-commerce in the US. And they are the force behind millions of entrepreneurs of every size, big and small, across 175 countries. And they've got award-winning help to support you every step of the way because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com paula all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash paula now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash paula. The popular mythology at the time was that transfer of wealth from Melvin Capital and all these big hedge funds to the little guy trading in his basement, the tw- you know the twenty three year old trading in his basement, that was a mythology at the time. But to your point, that in aggregate, Wall Street made quite a bit of money, did that come from enhanced information such as payment for order flow? Was that their mechanism for money making from this?
1: No, it wasn't I mean that there there's a a lot of payment for order flow went from one of these things that nobody talked about except like a twenty geeks you know sort of write about it or uh, work in the business to something that was nefarious, that everybody was talking about. And let me just explain what that is. Payment for order flow, that's how Robinhood can be in business. It's not how Fidelity and Schwab and these more established brokers that do all kinds of give you a credit card and an IRA and stuff like that. They, They, you know, some of them make money on that too. But for Robinhood, their median customer has 240 bucks in his or her account. That's nothing. I mean, that's like that you could never profitably operate a brokerage account with that little money. And the way that they make money is that they sell their orders and they keep a great deal of that that money. They sell it to market makers. So instead of sending it to a stock exchange, they send it to a company like Citadel Securities or Virtu or whatever who executes the trade. Now, they're not ripping customers off. Let me just be clear. Uh, Citadel is not cheating people because they have to give you a price that's at least as good as the stock exchange. But Citadel, you know, I mean, people in the stock exchange make money. They drive nice cars. They live in nice houses, and and the people who work at Citadel live in really nice houses too. They're not doing it for free. They made um, operating income of over four billion dollars uh, after depreciation and amortization in 2020. I don't know how much they made this year. That was a leak. So, but they just as we're speaking, uh, just hours before we we had this conversation, it came out that that firm, Citadel Securities was valued at $22 billion. Ken Griffin owns 85% of that. That's $18.3 billion. And that's not even his main source of wealth. His main source of wealth is another company called Citadel, which is a hedge fund firm. But Robinhood and, and people like that, they need to encourage as much trading as possible. They get paid the more you trade. They don't get paid if you make money. So there are some companies that make money on the the front end and some companies that make money on the back end in in finance, and they make money very much on the front end. They get paid when you trade in this kind of opaque way. But that's not how Wall Street made money is just to, to get back to your question. That's not the reason they made money is that they got paid for order flow like they Robinhood made money. They got paid a ton of money for. For the orders that they sold, there was a huge explosion in orders. Citadel Securities and Virtu and Susquehanna and other companies like that executed the orders and and they made money. And options dealers made tons and tons of money because people they, people were told to buy the types of options that had the greatest chance of moving the stock. Those also have to be the options in which you have the greatest chance of losing money. Uh, and I can, if you want me to, to kind of get into it, I will. But I mean, basically, they're called. Uh, short-dated out-of-the-money call options they're sort of like lottery tickets that have a bit of chance like they they could pay off really big if you get it right but they usually expire worthless but by buying them you create something and this was described in in some detail on wall street bets they didn't call it the right thing but it's it's what it's called is a gamma squeeze and a gamma squeeze means that the options dealers are like okay i sold you this option thank you for the money. It's probably going to expire worthless. But just in case, if this stock starts to go up, I have to buy it to protect myself. I'm not going to lose money, but I have to buy it. And what they they realized is lots of people bought these options all at once. Those options dealers would have to go out and buy the stock just to as a mechanical exercise to protect themselves. And all of a sudden, people with a lot more money than them had to spend millions and millions and millions of dollars on these stocks, AMC, GameStop, BlackBerry. And what all those companies have in common is that they have not been successful for like 10 or 20 years. They're all Mm has-beens. And so they're all companies that these hedge funds were felt pretty safe betting against. You know, they lost a lot of money selling short Tesla, selling short companies that were sending rocket ships to the, you know, to space or making uh, hydrogen garbage trucks and all kinds of stuff like that, even though it was sort of silly it kept on going up and their skepticism was not rewarded. It cost them a lot of money. But they figured, who cares about GameStop? Who cares about BlackBerry? Who's, who even owns a BlackBerry today? Mm-hmm. You know That company's going, Nokia? Yeah, I remember, I, remember I, I had a Nokia 25 years ago, not now. And so all, you know, these were all a collection of corporate has-beens, but they happened to be the, the easiest companies to manipulate in this way. And so that, that's why they became the meme stocks. AMC, too. AMC was probably six months from going out of business.
0: Did the effect that Wall Street bets have then start as a short squeeze and then move into a gamma squeeze?
1: It was both. So gamma squeeze uh, elicits a, a short squeeze where basically you – it happened in conjunction. So they mm. they bought the stock, but many people – if you really want to get a lot of bang for the buck, uh, then you you use the options. And you have to get approved to buy options. Luckily, Robinhood and a few other brokers made it really, really easy to sign up for options trading And as I discussed in the book, you know, they, they made it a little bit too easy because there are people, it's not just that they did this with it. You, You know, it's a free country. You can, you can burn up your money if you want, but people were buying options who clicked all kinds of boxes said, yeah, yeah, I understand I'm sophisticated. I can buy these derivatives. And then they immediately did things that showed that they had no idea what they were doing. For example, they would buy an out of the money put or call option that was not worth anything at the time. If you waited around for it to be worth something, maybe it would be, but then they would exercise the option right away. So they basically like, you know, it's like going up to like a horse track and betting on a, like the lamest horse. Right. Mm -hmm. And then not just even waiting for the race, going and tearing up your ticket. That's, that's kind of what they were doing. Mm -hmm. It's like, what do you even have any idea what you're doing? So there are people who are doing that and they made it very easy to do that. And so. Lots of people were getting approved for borrowing money, for using derivatives and stuff like that, and that kind of supercharged this this whole movement. So yeah, it was a short squeeze, and it was a gamma squeeze all at once, feeding upon itself, and that's how you got these crazy moves in a very short amount of time.
0: So this brings us to the point where Robinhood halted trading, but only on one side of the transaction. Can you talk about what happened? Because that was when the internet and, you know... Myself included, and this this everyone who follows personal finance even even a little bit, that was a very dramatic day for all of us.
1: That's the day that every late night talk show host was like riffing on it, every politician left and right. You know, this was this happened on January twenty-eighth. It happened twenty-two days after the Capitol riot. You know, the country was very raw at the time. It it happened barely a week after inauguration day for Joe Biden. All of a sudden, here's an issue that left and right totally agreed on. Where these young people got completely screwed and Robin Hood and there was going to be hell to pay. Congressional hearings were called that day. And it's a little bit more boring than what actually <laughs> happened, which was that basically it's not like magic when like you buy a stock, you see the trade execute right away. Okay, you made this much money. It takes a couple of days for you to get your money. It doesn't doesn't show up right away. There's a whole bunch of plumbing behind there. And. Every broker that is a broker has to be part of that plumbing, and uh, you have to make sure that, that plumbing doesn't get clogged up. And you have to put money down with uh, a central clearinghouse to make sure that in case you really screw up and you can't deliver the money that people paid to buy stock from your clients, you've got some money there on deposit so that everyone gets paid. And if you really blow up and even that money is not enough, then everyone else has to chip in and, and cover the shortfall. If that didn't happen, then the financial system could kind of collapse, right? So you have to make sure that people are good for the money. And Robinhood, at 3.30 in the morning Pacific time, so 6.30 in the morning Eastern time, their operations center got a call from the, the group that does this, which is part of the U.S. government, actually. Uh, and they said, guys, um, can you send us $3 billion in a few hours so you can stay in business? And of course, there was no way they could do that. Mm-hmm. they were going to be out of business.
0: This is for the deposits.
1: This is for the deposits because because their clients all had taken the same kind of risk because so many of their clients had done the same exact thing, going in the same, not like some were selling and some were buying. They were all just buying mm-hmm. and they were doing it with borrowed money in many cases. They were like opening accounts and using money that Robinhood kind of fronted them before their deposits cleared or they were using margin or they were buying derivatives. And so if GameStop And eventually it was going to, if GameStop and AMC and all those other stocks reversed in price and they reversed enough, then these clients could just walk away. Sorry, I don't have that money. Um, (laughs) I'm like, I'm a 22 year old guy, you know, I I deliver pizzas, you know, I I can't give you a few thousand dollars extra. So my bad. And there was a distinct possibility of that happening, you know, and they have these financial models. And so they said, $3 billion, please. And there was no way that Robin Hood was going to come up even in this crazy financial world we live in. With three billion dollars they never raised three billion dollars in their entire history as a company mm. so Robin Hood was a few hours away from going out of business and they went back to the DTCC and they said okay we're gonna reduce our risk how about if we don't allow our clients to open any more positions we will allow them to sell but we won't allow them to buy these stocks and the DTCC kind of did them a solid and said all right, well, we're going to recalculate. Then you only need $700 million, which is basically all the money that they could possibly gather in a few hours. They drew down all their bank credit lines and they went out that day and raised another billion dollars mm-hmm. from their investors that day. They almost blew themselves up. They they were so successful at getting their clients to, to speculate in these stocks that they just were too successful. They They almost overheated. And that's what happened. And all of a sudden, they went from being the sort of, this broker, this uh, that that said it was democratizing finance, to being public enemy number one. They mm. were, people were raking them over the coals, and they thought you must have gotten a call from some hedge fund that was losing a lot of money, and done this to save them. Mm. And that that's, that simply isn't what happened. If I say that on the internet, if I say that in an article, if I repeat that on Twitter or social media, I get you know twenty kind of crazy messages saying, "Who are you working for? Who's paying you?" I'm not working for anybody but the Wall Street Journal. I'm just <laughs> telling you what happened. Mm-hmm. But that is that is exactly what happened. That's why they couldn't do it. But of course, that's when everyone went crazy. And you have not only do, is that still a, a very popular conspiracy theory, but there are probably like five more further conspiracy theories built on that that have, have kind of emerged that are kind of way out there because of this sense of betrayal. And so I, I do understand why young people... I know, I know people who I know young people who, who were in the middle of this, who just felt like they were stabbed in the back by their broker, mm. but their broker would have gone out of business and and possibly, you know, probably their deposits would have been covered, but the broker wouldn't have been in business anymore. So uh, who's to blame what well, Robinhood is to blame kind of because they encouraged a lot of reckless behavior and they almost blew themselves up and they didn't do this to help anybody, but themselves, they didn't do it to help hedge funds. It did help hedge funds, but that's not why they did it but they kind of became public enemy number one. A lot of other brokers took advantage of this to to win new business to say, hey, we don't use payment for order flow or whatever. That's really not the issue. The issue is that these things happen. The market doesn't have an infinite ability to to absorb risk.
0: Right, and the reason that everyone was so upset by Robinhood's decision, I mean, twofold. One was that by limiting people's ability to buy the stock and only allowing them to sell it, it necessarily exerted one-way pressure on the price.
1: Yes, it did. That day, there actually was a rise during that day because some short sellers still had to cover. So that's when, so GameStop, just to put into context, GameStop in early 2020 got as low as almost $2 per share. Mm -hmm. That morning, it got as high as $483 per share. And there were other stocks that had even more extreme moves by the way, and then the wheels came off, and then it fell a bunch that day, it fell a bunch the next day, it fell a bunch the next day, and the next day. Then the wheels really came off, and the kind of momentum came out of this, but not for good because meme stocks are still a thing, and there are occasional gigantic increases in the share prices of the very same stocks that that played a starring role in this i mean you'll you'll see it happen any given week you'll see. And there'll be kind of new meme stocks too that go up a whole bunch because they're talked about on on social media. The difference now is that, that Wall Street, the people on Wall Street who care about these things, they know what's going on. They're they're making money off of it. They have computer programs that read these posts faster than a human can read it, and they're taking full advantage of what's going on, or they don't care.
0: We'll come back to this episode after this word from our sponsors. you'll have access to leading-edge technology and free shipping on everything. Again, that's dell.com slash deals. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate is not to search, but rather to match. And you can do that with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform. They have more than 350 million global monthly visitors. And a matching engine that leverages over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day. The more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Because you can use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging, you can connect with candidates faster. But beyond just faster, 93% of employers agree that Indeed delivers the highest quality matches as compared to other job sites. When I've hired people, I've always done so because we're in a time in which we're busy. I hire people for Afford Anything because... We have way more work than we can handle, and we need more hands on deck. But the thing is, hiring itself is additional workload. So you've got extra workload on top of already too much workload. That's what hiring is. Indeed makes the whole process go a lot smoother. So join more than 3.5 million businesses around the world that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit. To get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash Paula. Just go to Indeed.com slash Paula right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash Paula. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. In late January 2021, at the time that Robinhood made this decision, the optics of it looked like price fixing. It it looked like stock price fixing. You know, that's why there were congressional hearings. Yeah. It was the one issue, I remember, uh, the one issue that Ted Cruz and Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez agreed on. Yes, right.
1: And Donald Trump Jr. and... Josh Hawley, right? Everybody, there's nobody out there. There's the most stupid thing you could possibly say as a politician was what I'm saying now. I, mean, I guess I'm not, I'm not a politician. <laughs> yeah. Is like, well, actually, this is what happened. Uh, so let's be accurate. I mean, I think maybe most of them probably didn't understand mm-hmm. at, at least that day or those days what was happening, and some of them did. Some of them had a staff member who said, "Oh, actually, you know, Mr. Cruz, you know, this is what, whatever." But you're not paid to understand things. You're paid to sort of put things and frame them. The pop, You know, and this was a populist movement. You were insane to as a politician, for sure, to not sort of vilify the people who look like like villains. And I'm not saying they're angels, but there's kind of an innocent explanation, uh, which I go into, if you, you know, I go into it in my book. That's probably one of the the less interesting things I discussed in the book. I just wanted to be out there for the record. uh What's interesting is just how all this happened and all the stuff that was going on in the background. there's like just just so many stories in 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 parallel you know going on, and just how everything had to kind of happen at the right time. It was this whole cast of characters that had to play their role and this whole series of events that had to happen and this whole series of transformations and one thing that that we we didn't get to was social media was just that how social media is different than you know, a Yahoo message board uh, that we might – some of us might remember from 20 or so years ago. That also was a, a pretty important part of it.
0: And and so how is it different? Why didn't this happen in a Yahoo message board 20 years ago?
1: Well, there there were people out there pounding the table, buy this, buy that, buy, uh, buy Cisco, whatever. And, and you do have some effect if enough people get out there and shout – And here's a basic thing about influence. Uh, Let's say, Paula, let's say you're a very reasonable person and you go out and make a a very nuanced cerebral argument about something on the Internet. Mm -hmm. And then uh, I'm not a reasonable person or I'm a very, very confident person with an agenda. And I make the opposite argument, but I'm very confident. I present fairly few facts, but I say it in a very confident way. I'm going to have more influence than you. That is just how the world works, you know. The confidence, and concision, and whatever, as opposed to kind of cerebral, and putting things. and I think that this is going to happen. If I say I know this is going to happen, and you say I think this is going to happen, the person who says I know is going to get a lot more attention. Mm-hmm. So that's that's always been the case. But social media puts that on steroids because let's look at Wall Street Bets, right? Uh, let's say I go on Wall Street Bets and I'm like, hey this stock is going to the moon. It's going to a thousand dollars. I took out a second mortgage on my house, whatever, sold my car and did all this stuff so I could put as much money as possible into the stock. And you make a more nuanced argument. Not only is your argument less convincing, your argument will not be seen because there are algorithms that things that people have looked at that are wild, that are uh, bold, get more attention. And so if you go on a forum that has kind of it's a human-based algorithm, basically, um Reddit. People will upvote what I said a lot, and yours will be there if you really, really search for it, but it's kind of disappeared. And you know people don't have followers on on wall street bets. they they basically they're seeing the board and, and they're seeing the things that are popular posts. Mm-hmm. And so mine is going to be there. And so now imagine a third person not only doesn't see your your nuanced post, but sees my very confident post. But in addition to that, they have no idea what they're doing. They're new to the market. They heard about this GameStop thing. They heard about this opening a stock brokerage account at Robinhood. They're like, and because they're uh, Generation Z, they don't get their advice from a human being uh, or from their dad's broker or whatever. They get their advice from other people that seem a lot like them on the internet with funny memes. And I'm posting funny memes and I'm, you know, whatever. And they, they go on to Wall Street Bets and they see my post and they're like, I guess that's what successful stock traders do, and hey, Spencer has a picture of his his stock account, and he's made a lot of money, and he's funny, and he seems like me. I, he's not Spencer, he's like some whatever, stonks flying up, one, two, three, four, five, you know, yeah, use some pseudonym. They don't care about that. They I'm some guy out there who seems to know what he's doing, seems to have had some success, is very confident in something, and so they're gonna follow my lead. And so the modern social media Played a, a crucial role in this happening, not just in the sort of the sharing of this this sort of um, scheme to pump up GameStop, but just the the behavior of people who were new to it, who saw this. The first thing they'd see every day during a certain period was Keith Gill's E-Trade account, just the screenshot. Uh, deep effing value. He wasn't Keith Gill yet, uh, as far as they knew. They didn't know who he was, and everyone. And then there are just thousands of of responses. If he's still buying, I'm still buying. This is going to the moon. This is going to a thousand dollars for what it's worth. Keith Gill never said it's going to a thousand dollars, never urged anybody to buy, but he, he became a big part of the, the influence operation just passively.
0: How does what happened differ from a pump and dump or I guess a pump without the dump?
1: That's right. (laughs) That's how somebody put it. That's a, That's how um, Jordan Belfort put it to me, uh, the Wolf of Wall Street. Mm -hmm. He went to prison for pump and dump schemes and um, is now, you know, a law abiding member of society. But that's how he put it to me. It was a pump without the dump. And that's he said that was really weird. And so that's very hard to do and very, very unusual. It was a pump because, I mean, of course, the people on Wall Street bets are not a monolith, right? Some people were out there just to make money. But a lot of people, especially kind of late arrivals, were there for a cause. And the cause was to stick it to the man. And they were being told that they were bleeding Wall Street dry. Mm-hmm. And remember, this is a generation that they might have not have had a lot of financial experience, but their formative experiences financially were struggling to repay student loans, seeing their parents lose their jobs during the financial crisis, seeing Wall Street you know, walk away richer than before, maybe seeing their parents or friends of their parents lose their homes in 2008, 2009. And so they had a very dim view of of rich people on Wall Street. Not all rich people, mind you, but rich people on Wall Street. They did not like rich guys on Wall Street. So harming rich guys on Wall Street what sounded like a great idea. Mm. And if they could do it with a little bit of money that wasn't even that that meaningful to them, Let's go for it. And so that's why it was kind of like a pump without the dump because that the whole point was to quote unquote, to have diamond hands and to not sell, which is how the whole thing came to my attention. By the way, I mentioned I have three sons and my oldest boy, he had a lot of friends who were involved in this. He was a member of Wall Street bets. He he was not just for the record. None of my family were involved in any of these stocks, but a friend of his had bought GameStop. He came over to me. He was home from college. He's graduated from college now, and he said, uh, "Dad, are you writing something about GameStop?" And I said, "No. Why would I write something about GameStop? It's like a tiny little company." And I mean, just editing something for the Wall Street Journal, and I stop and look at it, and I see that it's doubled in a couple of days. I'm like, wow, let's let's see what happened. And I I realized that it had been about a year by then that things that were mentioned on Wall Street bets would go up a lot for a, a short time. Mm. This was different because I said, "Like, listen, I think your your friend should should sell his stock. I mean, this is like." This is ripe. This is ready to burst because I was wrong. And he said, no, he's not going to sell. He won't sell until it gets to, I don't know, X crazy price. Like, why would he do that? Like, what's what's wrong with him? He said, no, no, no. It's a whole movement on Wall Street bets. They're all hanging on. They can't sell. I literally 10 minutes after that, I was writing a letter to the publisher of my book saying, hey, this I have something that will make a really great book. This is going to be crazy. This is before the first articles that appeared about it but I could see that it was going to to blow up. That was pretty unique. Mm. I've been following investing for three decades. This is a, one of the strangest thing I've ever seen. <laughs> I, I knew it right away. You know, they responded, oh, do you have a book proposal about it? Like, no, this is like literally I found out about this 10 minutes ago. I'll write something tonight, you know, but this is going to be a big deal. It's going to be in the news. And it was, I mean, it was, it's, it's highly unusual. This is not something that happens all the time. A, lo- a lot of things have to kind of happen all at once for this to, to occur. Mm.
0: One of the things that you said that stood out to me is, you know, as I think about any other pump and dump or any other pump minus the dump or any other financial scheme out there, the differentiator may be that this was a movement. Yeah. Can you talk about that? The, the notion of this as a movement rather than it being purely a money-making ploy.
1: Yeah. I mean, the thing is that that it wasn't a, a monolith. So people, many people, let's say there's like a, a religious movement, Paul, and like, you know, and people have been in the movement for a while and they get a new recruit. I don't know. Have you noticed that, I don't know if you know anyone who sort of suddenly become religious or kind of dear to some mm. group or denomination They're the most enthusiastic ones, right? Yeah, exactly. And that's what happened here is that the people who were late, the people who were getting in in January, 2021, and there were millions of them, all they saw was, let's do this. Let's blow these guys up. A lot of the people, and I I, I speak with the the founder of Wall Street Bets, Jamie Rogozinski, a really interesting, bright guy who founded this, this bulletin board. And he's like, no, that's not what Wall Street Bets is about. Wall Street Bets is about hacking the system and making money. The thing is, like, yeah, that's what the original Wall Street Best was about. And that's what the, you know, that's what it was about once upon a time. But that's not what it became about for a short while. And so you had a lot of people who basically were all about blowing up hedge funds. That was their, that was what they wanted to accomplish. But at the same time, you had people who were just, you know, they were like, yeah, you know what? I just made a lot of money. I just made, I just made, like, enough to buy a house, enough to buy a car. I'm selling. And they did sell. So once the smoke cleared and you looked at the figures, they sold like lots of people who were, who got in early sold and made money. They did not stick around. They did not have diamond hands. They did not take one for the movement. And I feel really sorry for the people who kind of have stayed in there and absorbed losses, uh, who bought at, you know, 400, 450, $480 and and higher. And, are sitting on losses uh, that are, are meaningful to them because they wanted to be part of the movement. And some of them would say, "I don't care. I don't care that I lost money." Well, okay, fine. But some of them do care, and, and there are support groups for people who, who who lost money on these meme stocks. And it's it's kind of kind of sad. And I hope that those people go out, or parents of those people, or acquaintances of those people, read my book because there you know there really is a way to stick it to the man. I think on Wall Street, if you really resent. Wall Street, which makes a ton of money and you don't like the way that they they do business and you don't like their ethos Yeah, there's a way to to stick it to Wall Street, which is don't pay them money They did the opposite. They paid them a lot of money do the opposite Don't pay them a lot of money. You can own stocks and and own Mutual funds and things like that for very very little money and you can slowly get rich uh, and Wall Street provides all the tools And you can be like an unprofitable customer for Wall Street. You know, you could open up a Robinhood account, buy a bunch of stocks and not check it for five years, you know, buy some conservative stocks, I hope, but like, you know, and not just and just not check it. And, you know, they're they're not going to be making any money off of you. They have to pay all the overhead of running your account. They can't call you up and say, sorry, you're not crazy and you're not trading all the time. You can't keep your account. They have to keep your account open and your account is kind of going to be subsidized by all the people who are very active. So there's a way to stick it to the man. I mean, that's kind of the opposite of what they did, but that's a good way to do it.
0: So low fee, passive buy and hold investing is the actual movement. <laughs> Jack Bogle was the one who found the, the true
1: movement. <laughs> yes. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. That's the movement. That's You don't like Wall Street making a crazy amount of money off of you. You don't like Wall Street's ethos for whatever reason. I, I don't hate Wall Street or love Wall Street, is just it is what it is. you know? But mm-hmm. if you have a chip on your shoulder and you want to stick it to Wall Street and you and millions of other young people do that, Wall Street is going to hate you. you know, mm-hmm. that's, That is Wall Street's worst nightmare is you reaping the benefits without paying them crazy fees.
0: Oh, wow. I, I, I love that as the ultimate moral of the story, the low fee passive index fund approach. The boglehead approach, the fire community approach
1: totally I think that's first of all that's just the wise way to be with your finances Paul I mean that's uh, I think all the evidence is just overwhelming that that is that is the thing to do that is the way to to be that is the long term route to success you know it's most conducive to building a nice nest egg but as a twofer it's the polar opposite of what these people did be You know lazy basically and don't check your account all the time don't be hyperactive don't pay a lot be cheap and lazy and wall street's gonna grit their teeth but they have to to provide these services to you and that's the other thing is like i mentioned at the beginning of our talk that commissions going to zero were a big part of this well the fact that that commissions went to zero was the the result of decades and decades and decades of technological advancement and competition you know, you could not have done this 40 years ago. Today, you can do this. You could be a passive investor and, you know, invest for nothing and rebalance for nothing and open up a robo-advisor account or, or just, you know, buy index funds and hold them or buy a life cycle fund that rebalances. And it's the best thing that you can do for yourself in the long term. And if you hate Wall Street, well, there's a, there's a bonus.
0: Thank you for spending this time with us. Where can people find you if they would like to know more about you and your work?
1: They can find me on Twitter at Spencer Jacob, S-P-E-N-C-E-R-J-A-K-A-B. They can buy my book on this whole phenomenon, uh, which I hope they do. It's called The Revolution That Wasn't, GameStop, Reddit, and the Fleecing of Small Investors, out from uh, Portfolio Books or out in uh, Commonwealth countries from Penguin Business. And um, they can go to my personal website, spencerjacob.com. They'll see my picture and they can read Uh, synopses of my articles for the Wall Street Journal, uh, or they can go to the Wall Street Journal, where I'm the editor of the Hurt on the Street column, the financial analysis and opinion column of the Wall Street Journal, and uh, they can even see an occasional article there, although mostly I edit other people's articles these days.
0: Great. Well, thank you so much.
1: Thanks so much for having me.
0: Thank you, Spencer. What is the one primary key takeaway that we got from this conversation? I mean, I hate to revel in my own confirmation bias, but you heard him say it too, right? Index funds, index funds for the win. During the GameStop saga, there were many people who expressed anger at Wall Street for the way in which Wall Street seems to take all of the big profits. I've talked on this podcast about how Wall Street buys up all the rental properties, squeezing mom and pop investors, people like you and me, out of the game. Which is why it's so important that we don't sit out, because if we do, then Wall Street gets a monopoly on owning rental real estate, and that would make for a far worse situation for everyone. That's a bit of a tangent, but those types of behaviors trigger a lot of middle-class people and upper-middle-class people, people with 401ks and knowledge-based remote working jobs. People who feel like I've done everything right, and certainly I'm better off than the vast majority of the world's population. But why do I still perceive that there are a few orders of magnitude in Gulf that I cannot bridge? That's the pernicious effect that Wall Street has on everyday individual investors. And a lot of people a year ago joined the subreddit Wall Street Bets and looked to meme stocks as a way to take a stand and as a way to participate in that David versus Goliath narrative. But, as Spencer Jacob outlined, if that is what fuels you at least a little, then make sure that your actions are efficacious and not just virtue signaling. It's so easy to virtue signal by saying, yeah, I'm going to join this subreddit, and I'm going to hodl, hold the line, fuel the short squeeze. Or conversely, yeah, I'm going to just not participate. I've heard people say they're not going to participate in owning properties. They're not going to participate in opening a 401k. I'm going to opt out of the system entirely because that'll stick it to the man. No, it won't. All it'll do is weaken yourself and reduce your circle of influence, which means you'll be able to make less of an impact. Because you will have ceded that position of power. If you choose to squander the opportunities in front of you, that decision, that decision makes the situation worse for everyone, not just for yourself personally, but for society as a whole. So, in that classic standoff between Wall Street and Main Street, if you want to support Main Street, as Spencer Jacob outlined, passive index investing, the practices that Jack Bogle popularized that's simultaneously more likely to benefit you personally, your own wallet, and also makes the least amount of money for Wall Street, meaning it keeps money in the pockets of ordinary everyday people rather than seeping that money from mom and pop investors in the form of excess fees. And particularly if you go with a brokerage like Vanguard, Vanguard is a co-op. It's member owned. So the revolution, quote unquote. Sure, the members of the subreddit Wall Street Bets thought they were participating in a revolution. It was certainly a sexy narrative. But just because it grabs headlines, just because it provides a talking point, doesn't mean it's effective. And in fact, as Spencer Jacob outlined, in many ways it was counterproductive. And zooming out, that is the broader moral to the story that if you are motivated to participate in a financial revolution. Pause to critically consider your method or your approach, because often the thing that makes for the catchiest slogan is not the thing that actually creates change. Sometimes the revolution is quiet, and it takes the form of creating a new co-op brokerage, as Jack Bogle did, or of popularizing the index fund, or of being the landlord that you want to see in the world. Sometimes... It comes from not using a sense of moral superiority to justify being an underachiever as though there is nobility in a refusal to try. Sometimes embracing the opportunities that are in front of you and expanding your circle of influence, that's how you make the impact that you want to create in the world. And that is the wide lens key takeaway from the GameStop revolution. Thank you for tuning in. My name is Paula Pant. This is the Afford Anything podcast. If you want to discuss this episode with members of the community, go to affordanything.com slash community. That's affordanything.com slash community. You can find me on Instagram at Paula Pant, P-A-U-L-A, P-A-N-T. Beware, there are people who are imitating me on Instagram, so make sure that you are on the correct account, P-A-U-L-A, P-A-N-T. And if you do see someone who is imitating me, I've I've had three or four different imitators in the last couple of weeks, please do not engage with them via DM. Thank you again for tuning in and remember that you can subscribe to our show notes for free at affordanything.com slash show notes. My name is Paula Pant. This is the Afford Anything Podcast and I will catch you in the next episode.